This week, our 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series continues with a conversation featuring Dr. Mark Kokelberg to talk about the way that technologies are changing our understanding of ethics. Over the course of this show, we've spent a lot of time talking about how philosophical thought has tried to change or impact the way that we think about technologies. But it's also true that throughout history, technologies have themselves changed philosophical thinking. How do we animate technologies with human values? And how do technologies, in turn, both reflect and alter those very same human values? In our conversation, Mark and I discuss how new technologies, particularly robotics, AI, cybernetics, and memory devices, are changing the way that we think, and how we understand our ethical obligations to the world and to each other. Professor Dr. Mark Kugelberg is a professor of philosophy of media and technology in the philosophy department at the University of Vienna, and until recently, vice dean of the Faculty of Philosophy and Education. He's also the former president of the Society for Philosophy and Technology. His expertise focuses on ethics and technology, and in particular, robotics and artificial intelligence. He's a member of various entities that support policy building in the area of robotics and artificial intelligence, such as the European Commission's high-level expert group on artificial intelligence, the Austrian Council on Robotics and Artificial Intelligence, and the Austrian Advisory Council on Automated Mobility. He is the author of 16 philosophy books and numerous articles and is involved in several European research projects on robotics. From 2012 to 2014, Professor Kokelberg served as the managing director of the 3TU Center for Ethics and Technology. And from 2013 to 2015, he served as the co-chair of the technical committee Robot Ethics of the IEEE Robotics and Automation Society. He serves on numerous journal advisory boards at the intersection of ethics, society, and technology. He's a fellow of the World Technology Network and a finalist for the 2017 World Technology Awards in the category of ethics. His new book, Robot Ethics, MIT Press 2022, is a landmark guide to the ethical questions that arise from our use of industrial robotics, robotic companions, self-driving cars, and other robotic devices. So, Mark, the title of this episode is Narrating Ethical Technology from Tech to Action. It might be too subtle for listeners to catch, but the title is a nod to the philosopher and the great literary critic, Paul Ricoeur, whose title is From Text to Action, uh, very famously. Ours is From Tech to Action. I hope that that title gets at something really central in your thinking, which is that narratives about technology can tell us something important about how we act and how we interact with technologies. How do you think about the role of narrative in an ethics of technology? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, I was very inspired by uh, work of Ricoeur to think about hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is about interpretation. It's also about meaning. And I wanted to understand what is our relation to technology in terms of meaning, what kind of meaning is generated from what we do with technology. And uh, for that, I followed different paths. One was to use the work of the later Wittgenstein to argue that our technology use is uh, part of games and form of life. And another path I followed was using the work of Paul Ricoeur for understanding what we do te with technology is related to narratives. Yeah, th this enabled me to contribute to developing the hermeneutics of technology that was not based on text, like 
recurse hermeneutics and, and the hermeneutics that we have also much longer tradition where people, um, for example, interpret religious texts. And the idea was to, to um, instead of stick to text, to, to um, expand to all kinds of technologies and see how those are, are related to narratives and think about the meaning of technology. When you talk about hermeneutics, and I sometimes talk about hermeneutics, uh, I always tell my students that the word hermeneutics, when I define it, I say the word hermeneutics comes from the name of the Greek god Hermes, who was the god of messages. And I find this really helpful because I think that it explains something about what we're looking for ethically in narrative or in narratival form that they might not otherwise see. I, I like these kinds of etymologies Oftentimes when I start talking about ethics and technology in one of my first lectures for my course on the topic, I start with another etymology, which is that word technology itself. That word technology comes from the Greek word techne, which means art or craft. Sometimes in the class that I teach on literature, I tell students that it is related to the word text itself, which means woven thing. Again, the same kind of etymology, art and craft, woven thing. What do you think that this etymology of techne, which means art or craft, and is at the root of technology, gets at? Uh, perhaps something that gets lost in our connotative understanding today about that modern word, technology, when it gets bundled up with all of those ideas about science and ideas about kind of scientific progress. I think our modern word for technology is often hides, masks, that when we actually relate as human beings to technology, we don't confront technology as something that's entirely technical and scientific or modern time. We interact with technology, we experience technology in a way that brings along a lot of meanings that come from our culture and from um, ourselves also. And that, that person that interacts with technology is not just a sort of disembodied, abstract subject, but it's really an embodied person. And the Greek word techne, which we can think about through Heidegger, but also otherwise, that Greek word reminds us of this um, embodied dimension of the sort of skilled engagement with the material, with the world, with each other. And the skilled and bodily engagement, I think, is a very important aspect when we think about what we do with technology. But why is that important? What is it about the embodied nature of technology that gets at something ethical? Well, we are um, uh, vulnerable beings. We are not um, robots. We are not uh, just virtual avatars or, or something like that. So although the sort of internet culture uh, the way it's talked about is often in terms of virtuality, virtual worlds, online versus offline and so on. But I argue in my work that we always bring our body with us when we are online and we are always embodied. And th so that means that for having an ethical relation to others, that there is this vulnerable being that is interacting with technology and through technology to others. So I guess that this kind of meaning of techne brings in the body and brings in also the, uh, the more concrete social and existential aspect of doing things with technology. And some of this I, I have studied in my book, Human Being at Risk, 
where I say that that technologies always transform our being vulnerable, our being at risk, uh, the way we are uh, as, as vulnerable beings in the world. So in that sense, these technologies amplify existing vulnerabilities within the human and expose us uh, through those vulnerabilities in ways that without the technology we might be able to keep hidden. Is that close to what you're trying to say? It's not so much just exposing. Um, of course, there's a, an element uh, of that through social media. We expose ourselves and um, extend ourselves into the whole world. But it's it's not so much that we expose aspects of ourselves that are already there, but rather that technology transforms what's already there. Technology changes us. I think any good philosophy of technology should conceptualize what that means, right? So try to to tell us um, how technology changes us. And I think that makes it very interesting to see technology not as a as an instrument, but technology as something that changes us both as persons and as human beings. How did the Greeks think about technology? What kind of stories did they tell about? And why should we today care? The Greeks have uh, all kind of stories have, uh, for example, the story of Prometheus, uh, who um, gave the um, fire to human beings. For the Greeks, they thought in general that we human beings don't have the right to be gods and that um, we can use technology to do things. We can use technology to try to get more powerful. But the Greeks always put limits to that. They in their tragedies also, they put a human being within a wider framework where they cannot just control everything. I think that's this tragic understanding is also one, yeah, one thing that I pointed to earlier in my work, but which I also want to get at through this narrative approach. Because Ricoeur was, of course, very interested in and influenced by Aristotle's poetics and through the poetics um, gets to, to, to tragedy also. I think that, that this tragic dimension of um, human existence is very important and, and the technological culture we live in today denies that. It tries to get full control. It tries to, um, to say that we should be these uh, superhumans, but we are not and we cannot be. Uh, the human condition has those limits and it's very hard to accept those. It's not only transhumanists or the scientists that try to create technologies for full control that are the problem. The, the, we are, as human beings, we want to transcend and we, we do not accept limits, but in the end, we have, to, we have to accept them. And I think the Greeks were very good in conveying that sense of tragedy and that's sometimes missing in our modern technological world. So I think it's good to, to uh, remind ourselves of that by reading the Greeks and uh, reading their stories. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating to me. Oftentimes I teach Silicon Valley's moral vision as a vision of a moral utopia. The technologies are presented to us as utopian uh, technologies that will transform or change the world. Even if it's just an app delivering my food, it's going to change the world. And it's not going just to change the world, it's going to change the world for the better, for a moral utopian vision. Of course, if you look at some of the fundamental utopian visions by the Greeks and by their counterparts uh, all over the world, these formative utopian visions always end terribly. 
always end in dystopia, whether it's Prometheus or the Tower of Babel, to our modern day dystopian science fiction. Why does it always end badly? What is the tragic dimension that always uh, seems to emerge about? It ends badly because in a, in a utopian vision, we want to control everything. We want to um, have a closed world where there is no room for risk, but also no room for surprise, no room for new meanings that could sort of, um, yeah, creep in. And in real life, we have that possibility. We also have the possibility to suffer a lot and to experience not nice events and so on. But at the same time, this openness, this fundamental openness of human existence also creates opportunities for for the new to come in. Uh, I think also about Hannah Arendt, who talked about the new there. So I think that's a problem with, with utopias that always turn in dystopias. They make a sort of closed box, uh, a clean box also, a clean world in a way, a world of control. And I think that must go wrong, that there's no, that necessarily go, goes wrong. So though I think we can change society and we can you know try to do social change and, and try to make things better, I think the utopian direction of that is, is very problematic. And of course, also in, in practice, not only theoretically, philosophically, but in practice, the, the 20th century is very much a sort of churchyard of utopias. And um, I think, you know, everyone who knows a bit of history also gets reminded of that constantly, of that danger of creating utopias. I talk about utopias oftentimes as absolute moral visions. And if your absolute moral vision is absolute and it's moral, then anybody who stands in the way of your vision or anybody who's anti your vision is then morally wrong and thus must be gotten out of the way. So I talk about moral utopias, not only in science fiction, but I talk about some of the great figures, for example, in the 20th century who tried to enact moral visions. I talk about Hitler. I talk about Chinese communism, both of which we can say whatever we think about those moral visions now as grotesque or horrendous. But at the time, they were, among many other things, absolute moral visions that had a vision of the world in which there were, for example, no political dissidents or Jews who had Mm -hmm. to be gotten out of the way for the creation of that absolute utopian moral vision. So maybe there's a, a lesson there about lingering in complexity, about limiting our ability to see or envision or enact an absolute moral utopia. Maybe there's a lesson about civil discourse there. What's the lesson about technology for you? Yeah, I think this kind of lessons that, that in a way, purity and purification can be totalitarian and violent. For technology, I think it means that if we use technology to have fully closed system of surveillance where we try to manipulate see every human being, um, yeah, then we we get more purity and the cost is that we lose the humanity. So uh, I think the current digital technologies, including artificial intelligence, regardless of all the positive opportunities they bring, also, you know, present a great danger, not in themselves, but in combination with those more totalitarian approaches. That's why I'm also recently um, more writing about the the politics of AI and also use political philosophy to think about how we can draw on the best 
thinking we have so far in philosophy to try to understand those dangers and um, not move in that direction. And unfortunately, today, there, there are those dangers politically in general, but also with technology. So we need to make sure that we, we understand those processes in order to avoid the worst. In the course that I teach on science fiction that I mentioned, the premise of that course is that before we can build any technology, we first have to imagine it. There is no building without a prior vision of a value or a vision of the future that that technology is aimed at enacting or creating. So to that end, I tell my students, it's important to interrogate the realm of our imagination since technological products are oftentimes not only just imagined abstractly as moral visions, but imagined in science fiction first or are inspired by the imaginings of science fiction, film, television, literature. And the public is primed to receive new technologies or desire or to imagine a future based on what science fiction imagines first. But I think that from what I understand of your work, you complicate that in that for you. And I'm going to quote you here. Technical practices are not only prefigured by the manifold of stories that are told about them. That is to say, they don't just play a passive role in our narratives about them but that they actively configure or refigure those stories through our interactions with them. What do you mean by that idea mm. that they prefigure, not just playing a passive role, but actively configuring or refiguring the stories mm. that we tell about tech by our interactions with them? How do technologies configure or refigure the stories we tell about them through our interactions with them? Yes, this, this leads us to that hermeneutics again. So the idea is that, that normally when we think about technologies and narratives, we think about narratives about technology. So we tell stories about technology, um, about how technology, for example, can be used for, for wars, has been used for wars. But th that's a story about technology. And what I wanted to do with uh, using Recur is to conceptualize how technology plays an active role in the sense of also shaping our narratives, co-authoring our narratives, one could say. And then these terms from uh, prefiguration and, and so on, they're taken from recur, and uh, they have to do with how narratives draw on meanings that are already there. And then also uh, through, through emplotment, uh, recursive, we organize events and characters into a coherent and meaningful whole. And this kind of process doesn't only work with texts, but also with technologies. Technologies help us also to create meaning. And technologies themselves also draws on, on all those meanings that are there already in our culture. For example, ideas about human enhancement and future of the human um, understood in a more technological way often draws on, on stories in our culture that are already, for example, apocalyptical, eschatological, and so on, about end times, about times after this time, when everything will be different. And those meanings are there in our society. And so the moment I use a technology or I talk about technology, um, I'm not just talking about this object or this material artifact, but I'm talking about that technology in a way that connects with those wider narratives. And once we have new technologies, they will also shape these narratives. For example, artificial intelligence 
now, in a sense, co-writes the story about our future. Um, suddenly, our future looks different than before AI. There are people who write stories literally about how AI takes over how, or how AI somehow becomes part of our daily lives, how AI mixes with the meanings that are uh, there in, in, in our society. So this is the challenge of uh, this kind of thinking is to, yeah, to see technologies not just as things, but as co-writing those, uh, the narratives and in the end also co-writing what we do even on a daily basis. This is fascinating to me. I mean, once you start looking for stories as the ethics uh, or the lever as well for technological production, you find them everywhere. I was talking to a venture capitalist. I say to him, how do you decide which technologies to fund? He says, I look for the movie. I said, what do you mean you look for the movie? He says, I want to see the hero's journey. I want to see the hero's journey enacted. I want to see how this person goes through the hero's journey and then becomes the hero who saves us through usually his technology. So, you know, you have the kind of narrative production very ensconced in this idea of narrative itself. And of course, the mm -hmm. term plotment, which comes, at least I connect that term very much with uh, Hayden White, who writes about the ethics of deciding how we select and how we arrange different pieces of information so as to make intelligible the things around us. And that act of making something intelligible is not itself neutral. It is not inert. It is a choice about how to encode and plot pieces of information so as to make sense and then to make meaning and then to decide the value of a certain set of facts. So that itself, I, I can understand, is ethical. Mm -hmm. But help me connect the dots a little bit more closely. How can knowing, identifying, and understanding stories that technologies tell provide an ethical insight into technological culture and production? There are various ways one can connect the ethical to the narrative. Maybe one good example of how it can be done is just to, to look at something very concrete we use every day, namely our electronic calendars. There also has been great science and technology studies research on this. So basically, this is a technology, and normally we, we would think that the, an electronic calendar is just there to represent what we want to do anyway. Yeah, so that basically we, we always think that we write our own story and then the technology is just an instrument. Now, what is actually happening is that once we have those calendars and also the emails connected to it and all the other digital technologies, uh, the mobile phones and so on, what actually happens is that we become, as a choreographed by our technologies, we become choreographed by, the, by our own calendars. We think that we're in control when, in fact, we, we start living our days controlled, monitored by those technology. That raises then the, the normative and ethical question, is this the life we want to have? Is this the good life? And it's also something that I take from the ancients, always like this question about the good life, about eudaimonia. What would be a better way of living than um, yeah, being sort of chased by our own calendar technologies, by our time technologies all, <laughs> all day long. You know, um, there, there must be a better way. And, and there the imagination comes in also. Ethics and imagination is very important. 
we definitely need that imagination to imagine what can go wrong, but also to imagine, as I now stress, to you know, to imagine a better future, a positive future, and and not only to to criticize. Yeah, you know, I was talking for the series to Dr. N. Kate Hales, uh, who most famously perhaps um, posed the term posthumanism to describe a kind of cybernetic relationship that human beings have to our technologies. An example of this would be the Fitbit. The Fitbit not only record our behavior as we go about our day, uh, recording our heartbeat, recording our steps, but actually alters all our behavior, asks us to, in a sense, perform differently by recording and then also managing the way that we respond to the recording. And I use this cybernetics as an example because maybe it's a term that can also help us explore another, I think, very provocative and very bold dimension of your research, which suggests that technologies themselves perhaps behave cybernetically with our ethical systems. That technologies are not only evaluated and metabolized by philosophical thought, they not only record and can be evaluated by philosophical thought, but that they also have added to and altered philosophical thought and transformed the way we think about human values, and human ethics. How do we think about that idea? Do you have a case where you see that happening? Well, in a very known case, I think, is privacy. There was a time when we were not really prepared to give a lot of personal details. We would only give it to some uh, official institutions, say the police or, or, or so, or the local uh, authorities. What we have now is that we put an amazing amount of personal information on the internet uh, voluntarily via social media, for example, and try to say like, oh, well, it's still about privacy. Well, but what we mean by privacy um, changes. What we mean today by privacy is very much shaped by these new technologies. So we, we give much more information and then we, we decide perhaps to, to not share it with everyone. But that sharing and not sharing those decisions are mediated by the technologies. What we consider now to be private would really surprise someone from the 19th century when our more traditional idea of privacy was related to, you know, being in the, in the bourgeois house where you keep the things inside of the house and control what, what you let out or not. And now we have different technologies. Yeah, you see that younger generations share much more of their personal information. So it can't be that privacy is now the same as, as it used to be and, and technology really changed that. Yeah. Okay. So there's another term too associated both with the 19th century and social media, which is friendship. The word friend itself, I think, as a value that that mm -hmm. ethical value of friendship has been very much transformed by Facebook's idea of the friend as a casual acquaintance, the person you met once and who's now included in your social network and the person with whom you share perhaps very private things. So I see where you're going. Okay. You brought up the 19th century first. So now I feel okay bringing it into the conversation. Mm -hmm. One of your works, New Romantic Cyborgs, you talk about in that book, the influence of romanticism on technology. That is the movement uh, from about the late 1700s to the mid 1800s or the 19th century. And you talk about the influence of romanticism on technology. And just to clarify a little bit more for listeners, what romanticism really is about. Romanticism is an aesthetic, artistic, political, and intellectual movement from that time period, about the 1700s to the mid-1800s, that 
was interested in feelings and friendship and individualism and privacy and liberalism. Some notable romantics include uh, William Wordsworth, the philosopher and writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, uh, Jörg Wolfgang Frederick and Hegel, and a number of notable others. What is the relationship between romanticism and technology? In my book, I show that the 19th century is not over in a way. It's anyway always been called the long 19th century, uh, but it, it continues in a sense that in modernity itself, there is this dialectic between the sort of idea of, of science that has to be without emotions and objective, an idea that still plays a role in, in for example, thinking about robotics today, and the reaction against that, the reaction of the romantics of the early 19th century was to, to say like, hey, the, the, the world is uh, disenchanted because of science and technology. And um, against that, we're going to write poetry, we're going to, uh, to make uh, beautiful things, and we're going to try to uh, re-enchant the world to bring wonder and mystery back into the world. So all this is related to whole uh, discussion about religion, about beauty, about value, and so on. And I think we are somehow still influenced by that today in our relation to technology when we use technologies to escape to worlds that are beautiful as opposed to what romantics would call the Philistine sort of ordinary day-to-day world, which might be boring or frightening or horrible. And just like the the 19th century uh, romantics, we we try to re-enchant the world with technology. So if you look at texts that companies write about their new technologies, you know, virtual reality, robots, AI, and so on, there's a kind of poetics in there that is very romantic, that appeals to our romantic fantasies and uh, our romantic search for meaning in a world that's supposed to be disenchanted. Now, I diffuse that idea and say, like, well, the world, maybe the world was, you know, if we think in a more non-modern way, the world was never really disenchanted. And so this whole disenchantment, enchantment, it's really a dialectic. They're sort of locked into that pattern. But it definitely influences us still today. So if we want to understand how we experience technology, use technology, think about technology, we have to really look in all kinds of corners of our culture, also those corners that perhaps surprise people, you know, as Usually people don't think that this has anything to do with, with technology. <laughs> you know, the touchstone, I think, case for narrative in terms of the romantic period that has to do with both the enchantment and the disenchantment of technology is, of course, I think Mary Shelley's Frankenstein emerges at a period mm-hmm. of time where new understandings about body, new understandings about the science of the body and vivification, and new understandings about electricity merged to this idea that we can create this kind of prototypical human creation of the non-human that can replicate in many ways what we think about the human as a kind of fundamental dimension of the human. And then, of course, it tragically goes out of our control, comes Frankenstein's monster. And I think about that enchantment and disenchantment. And I think about the way in which that narrative carries over right to the present we have the enchantment, for example, something like Facebook, and then the disenchantment of this human invention going far beyond what the humans who created it imagined it to be. In a sense, our narrative about Facebook is the same narrative of Frankenstein's monster. 
And so I, <laughs> I want to ask you a question about why don't we ever learn from the past that our Facebook will become Facebook's monster, just as Frankenstein's uh, creation became Frankenstein's monster. Aren't we moving irresponsibly fast toward an era that technology is slipping from our fingers and our control? And hasn't that happened before? How do we ensure that technology is tied to our human values? And why do we think and continue to think that it will be, even as history and our narratives from the past teach us otherwise? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the deeper reason is um, because we have we keep on having this instrumental understanding of technology on the one hand. So that's what we say technology is. On the other hand, we act like romantics and we, we let ourselves be seduced by the narratives and the, the new technologies, the promises. And so, so this combination is, is pretty dangerous. And I think we need to uh, lose our naivety about technology and uh, take a more critical approach. For that, it's necessary that, that we as users get more educated about this deeper link between technology and culture. And then also the people who develop technology lose that naivety and, and see that technology is just like many other things in life, that it, it has all these different sides, that it's ambiguous, that it's ethically ambiguous also, and that it's not, not just a tool, not just an instrument to reach our goals, but that it, it, it shapes those goals, that it really, in the end, also uh, ultimately uh, shapes our society and, and the future of our you know, next generation. If we could change that, we could also get out of this eternal recurrence of the same mistakes. Are you optimistic? Well, um, I have to be a little bit optimistic because otherwise I would quit my job. I think we need to, try <laughs> to, 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 you know, to change thinking and educate. But of course, sometimes when I see what happens with technology, with human beings, what human beings to do to each other by using technologies, it's, it is, of course, there's a dark side to that. Uh, also, the, the raw power that's, power that's exercised you know, by means of these technologies that started like in the case of Facebook that started as a tool for you know boys looking at girls and, and evaluating them that's how it started right so like very very naive in a way and very innocent and then comes this this powerhouse that also through other technologies just not just Facebook right it's this whole type of social media that uh, plays such an important part in the lives of many people. And uh, that does so much more than than just showing pictures. So, yeah, we we need to to lose that naivety. We need to get this critical thinking. But uh, yeah, I remain optimistic that we can, through education and through uh, changing the, the way technologies are developed, also making politics more aware of the importance of technologies and so on. I think we can we can change. Uh, so it's it's not that technology is this deterministic force that is totally external to us. And this is also what the guy who made the monster of Frankenstein in the story, in the end, what his real mistake is. The mistake is not that he lets it out of control as if it's just the technology that turns away. The mistake is that, that he abandons his own creation. He is related to the technology. We are all related to the technologies. If we recognize that technologies are human, not humans, but human, then we can also take responsibility for them. So we, we should not always see technology as this external thing 
that comes to get us or runs away, but as something that's part of us and that therefore uh, should be part of our, in a way, our collective human human self-care, the self-care of humanity. And I think there, yeah, thinkers like Heidegger and Hannah Arendt and so on can inspire us to to think through those issues, you know, without having the last word. I wanted to pull a thread out of something uh, said in your last response, because I think it's very interesting, important that we pay attention not only to the technologies in an abstract philosophical sense, but as you put it, technology uh, and ethics at the site where technological practices are inaugurated in the world. When you talked about Facebook, you talked about the site where the technology was invented. That is to say, a kind of tech programmer dude at Harvard using this technology to do what you know early twenty-year-olds uh, uh, do, which is rate girls, and uh, <laughs> and then the site of Silicon Valley, a site where um, Silicon Valley venture capitalists do what Silicon Valley venture capitalists tend to do which is look for ways to exploit the technology for profit. So what I take you to mean by that phrase, looking at technological production and ethics at the site where they are inaugurated in the world, is that we can't just think about ethical production of technology in the abstract, governed by theories and maxims, but we rather need to acknowledge the actual environment where technological production happens and the culture that it happens in. We can't ignore, for example, the realities of venture capital is governing which and how ideas get funded, executed, scaled, and distributed. We can't ignore power structures, management determinations, and deliverable demands that limit an engineer's ability in the workplace to act ethically. And we can't ignore the fact that tech companies oftentimes have no idea how their product will evolve, distributed, be used, or misused. How, if at all, does your understanding about ethics and your ethical guidance and your ethical theory change when it encounters the site of technological production, the reality of how innovation works? Yes, I think if we encounter that reality, we get those power relations in, but we also get the cultural and intercultural aspects. And for example, you, you live in California, I believe. Well, in, in California, um, a lot of technology is developed that is used not only in California, but also in the rest of the U.S. and, and also in Europe and all over the world. And for example, if, if I use, uh, I mean, most technologies, most digital technologies I use have been developed there. And that means that if it's true that technology and culture are so much entangled, as I argued, then it also means that this culture gets exported. Yeah? If that happens, then it could be all kinds of frictions, all kinds of problems, because, of course, that culture is not going to fit exactly culture that, that's over here in Europe. And there's also going to be influence, right? So the, the way we work nowadays in, in Europe might, might well be influenced by those technologies from California. And it's not just the technologies, but the whole culture. And for example, in my book uh, on, on new romantic cyborgs, I um, show that this sort of tech hippie culture, a sort of mixture of technology freaks and hippies, that this has really created our contemporary uh, digital culture. And so if we really want to understand yeah, what we're doing today, then um, strangely enough, we have to go to these very specific cultural sites and see what, what were the ideas of people 
um, back then in the 70s and the 80s when they developed personal computers. What were the ideas then later in the 90s of people who, um, again, not mainstream yet, uh, in the beginning of the 90s, uh, people who used the internet, developed the internet first. These were all relatively small communities, but their values and their visions often still influence us today. For example, the internet, we are, we are very um, influenced by the 90s idea that internet sort of gives a certain liberation, enables this romantic play of identities, play in virtual worlds and so on. But then we, we get confronted with the 21st century raw power games about, um, about the future of those uh, kind of platforms, about the, the politics of these platforms and the whole internet. And we see that things are very different than those who developed it, imagined it. So both historically and um, interculturally, there are frictions and transfers and um, all kinds of things happen. And so once we recognize that technologies are human and that, that culture and technology are very much interwoven, then yeah, this, um, we can begin to understand what's happening and we can also take a more critical attitude towards the technologies we use. I want to maybe complicate this idea that all technologies are human because I think we're living in an age that many people are calling the Anthropocene, an age in which our very human technologies we acknowledge have very real consequences for the rest of the world. And that idea of the Anthropocene, I think in many ways, climate change have asked us to think about the ways in which uh, we as humans create human technologies that then transform the world, oftentimes in deeply destructive ways for other species itself. And that mm -hmm. thinking has, I think, led us to want to complicate that boundary between the human and the non-human um, in, in significant ways. You know, one of the things I teach when I teach my sci-fi class is the movie WALL-E. And I end with that movie, not only because I know that students will get a kick out of the nostalgia trip, maybe it'll influence their evaluations positively, but also because I think the film consolates a number of really important ethical principles about the nature of the human, non-human world, and that idea of human values as perhaps estranged from planetary values. Perhaps our technologies animated by human values uh, actually needing to accommodate values of the non-human world. Wally -E is a story about our ethics toward the environment. It's a story about the possibility of choosing a narrative of conservation over a narrative of techno fixes. And by the term conservationism, I mean a return to a ethic of care and rehabilitation of the planet versus techno fixing. By what I mean as techno fixing is a way of thinking about our separation further from the planet, perhaps leaving the planet with new space technologies that would allow us to live outside and apart from it. Wally -E is also really, I think, essentially a narrative about love. It's a love story or at least a friendship story between two robots in outer space. And I highlight this dimension of the film because I think it gets at something really important. It showcases the ideals of the human concepts of love, care, and ethical obligation toward the other. But in Wally, -E, those very human concepts are exemplified and vivified and embodied not by humans, but by our technologies embodied by these non-human entities, and they are projected ultimately not toward other human beings, but rather the planet. And I love that 
dimension of the film because it asks us how our technologies can enhance or perhaps block our ability to practice and sustain those principles as a way of getting at our relationship and our responsibility toward others, not just human others, but non-human animals, all kinds of life forms, ecosystems, natural environments, and of course, technologies. I guess my question here is how do we think about these principles, love, justice, truth, beauty, friendship, outside of the realm of the human? Do they exist in outer space? Do they exist as concepts outside of the nature of the human? Can we, in a sense, love our technologies? Can our technologies love our technologies? And what does this mean for the future of how we think about the planet? One issue is definitely um, that we um, have in our modern society a, a problem with, with human relationships and human living together. And so there's a deep yearning, I think, for friendship, for love, for having a yeah, better way of dealing with one another. And I think we, we project that then on uh, robots, which are very anthropomorphized. Uh, so they look very much like humans. So I think there, in a way, the, the fact that that's technologies is less important. It's more about us and what we want and, and, uh, and lack. But the wider issue there in, um, when we think about the planet is that we have this uh, movement towards techno-fixes, techno-solutionism. And I think that's a very dangerous thing because what's happening is that already in the Anthropocene, we have this, this hyper-agency um, by means of technology, we try to control the planet, planets. So we don't only try to control others, but we try to control the planet. And we do that by means of technology. And so technologies, also like AI um, and, and other digital technologies, they help us uh, to make the planet into a sort of spaceship that we then control. And of course, this out the fact that we are very dependent on the planet as vulnerable embodied beings, uh, that we have other beings on this planet uh, living here. So I think we should loosen our grip on the earth if we want to solve the problem of the Anthropocene um, and take more an attitude of, of letting go, letting be, perhaps also more tragic at, attitude. Again, this connects to uh, what we talked about before. So uh, the question then is what, what do we want then with our technologies? And can we have technologies that rather enable us to relate to others, to relate to non-human beings? And there, the, the I think, post-humanist theory has done a great job in uh, breaking down the anthropocentric dimension of our ethics, of our ways of looking at the world. But there's also danger there, because uh, I think if we think that relations with non-human beings are just going to be a sort of um, nice picnic, then we're also wrong, right? So there's a romanticization also of relations with robots, relations with animals, non-human animals. Nature is not a picnic and nature is not always a love relationship. But there's dependence, there's relationality, and we can learn from the from environmental ethics, I think, for uh, technology ethics, that we should yeah, have a more relational understanding of ourselves and start from there when, when we then ask the question, okay, what to do with technology? If we forget that, if we don't do that, we will just use technology to further control. We will project our desires onto technology rather than face reality. And uh, we will yeah, go in a direction that's neither ethically very 
beautiful nor uh, aesthetically probably when we you know make this planet into dystopia you know something occurred to me when you use that word aesthetic because when i talk about wally i sometimes talk about the representation of technology in art but of course wally is also an aesthetic produced by technologies it is animation by pixar largely created by modern technological products. More and more, I think we actually see aesthetics governed by uh, what tech will produce. Art animated by and created by robots from classical music composed by AI to the very funny memes titled something like, I made a bot watch 10,000 hours of Seinfeld. And then I asked it to write an episode on its own with the results being both comedic and horrifyingly mismatched to the delicacy of human sensibilities about what's funny or how idioms work, et cetera. So when you talk about the possibility that we can co-create and co-design and choreographies, plays, music, shows with technology, I wonder where that line is. At what point do we decide that art is human creativity made versus technology made? tech bearing the brunt of our creative agency. Should we care? Of course, uh, as I'm thinking about this, all art, I have to acknowledge, is technologically contingent from the possibilities of painting when acrylics were developed, changing fundamentally to the possibilities of music production changing with new technological innovations of certain instruments or, for example, auto-tune, to the fact that You know, as a literary scholar, I have to acknowledge that the printing press is an essential technology for literary production. And it really changed literary production. That technologies always have been the thing upon which artistic creation and artistic production is contingent. So I acknowledge that. But then I think about, you know, the idea of AI writing classical music. And I say, well, even if the AI writes classical music, that may, in a sense, be more aesthetically pleasing, maybe uh, as entertaining as human created piece of classical music. One thing that I admire in a piece of artistic production is the splendor of the human creativity behind it. I think that that's what we admire, what we praise when we say that a piece of art is good or innovative or groundbreaking or form breaking. Is the same thing true with technology? Does a technologically created piece of art, AI, bot writing Seinfeld or something, even if it writes Seinfeld splendidly, perform the value of what we think of as the value of art? Does it or, or not? It's a big question and it depends, as, you know, as I said in my article on, on this, uh, it depends very much on, on what we think art is, right? So if we think art is something that we just have to agree on that it's art, for example, that something that sells for many millions, if that you know, the definition of art, then uh, I think a lot of these products made by technologies can be considered as art. If we think that there needs to be some kind of romantic genius uh, um, inside, then then, um, we have to stick with the humans. Two remarks about it. I think, first of all, we have again this competition narrative here between humans and technology. And I think we, we should be critical of that. In the West, we put too much importance on this question, uh, is it human, is it not human? And second, I think the, in the examples, therefore, we always have this idea that technology takes over. But in fact, what we see is that, um, you know, you gave the example with the printing press, what we see is that humans and technology do great things together. You know, so the, the, the human, uh, human culture is not, in fact, 
killed by technology, um, but is enhanced by technology in, if it's done well. And the printing press is a beautiful example of that. Uh, it has changed our culture, our thinking. Uh, we, we, we now think by writing. The writing shapes our thinking. So all the, yeah, the, the books I've written, they're all written and, and they're written on a, on a computer, which is a sort of remediation of typewriter and a typewriter remediation of the printing press. So this is, uh, for me, the, the, the challenge with art and, and you know, keeping the human element is to, to have combinations of humans and art, uh, sorry, humans and technology that work and that lift the human spirit and can do something that we never could do before. Um, and the whole, you know, McLuhan talked about the Gutenberg galaxy. And there's, of course, that this whole history from, from the medium of the printing press until the internet. Our digital technologies are also in some ways still like sort of children of um, that evolution. So everything that's wonderful about technology today almost is, is also, uh, yeah, what we like about technology comes from there. And uh, so not everything should be, should be seen as necessarily um, limiting the, the human creativity and the human spirit. The context for the series is thinking about the role in the human of the humanities and humanistic driven inquiry in the context of technological culture and production. What value do you see the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as the tradition playing? Or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and thinking about what it is that we do when we envision, design, and create technologies? Yeah, I think humanities, if it's... Um further developed in a way that that acknowledges and studies and understands these ways in, in, in which technologies and culture are, are related, I think then that kind of humanities can um, help us to go beyond the instrumentalist view of technology. And uh, I think that's important to, to teach engineers, but um, and, you know, other people who develop technology. But it's also important to educate humanities people in that. And I think if we have more sort of interdisciplinary humanities that recognize the materialist and technological side of human culture and, and that understand also um, the kind of issues we talk, we've been talking about, I think then we have um, suddenly that, that opens up new possibilities for people to do great things on the border, on the meeting point between technology and, and humanities. And so I think we, we can move towards what some people call post-humanities in that sense, and, and try to transform also the humanities. So instead of just having a conservative argument about the human should be central and the human uh, should, should be like it was before technology, we cannot go back to, to a Garden of Eden, uh, as Don Aide also has argued. So what the only way is forward, but then a way where where the humanities and the sciences meet, also where we have people who are, yeah, who can talk about both of these worlds and confuse these worlds, who can talk about emotions, vulnerability, love, and so on, but at the same time also can contribute to making better technologies. What one lesson would you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? 
that's a huge question. Uh, I had several potential answers to the question. I have to, to, <laughs> you only get uh, one. To, to look. Uh, yeah, I, I think we should, as we move into the 21st century, I think we should make sure that we don't get to this dystopia. And the w- one way to get there is to recognize and cultivate some playfulness in ourselves and in our dealings with technology and in in the creativity that that we will need to to create the technologies of the future because if we are um, too serious and too um, straightforward and go towards the purity and and the the straight lines i think we we will end up there we will end up in a dystopian future so so to to avoid that we need playfulness and um, imagination and in that way uh, yeah be, be more responsible in the sense of responsive to what happens around us to what happens now uh, with the earth with the planet I think if we manage that then um, to combine responsibility and playfulness we have better chances to strike the right kind of tone and and to find technologies that are good for us and good for other beings. Thanks so much, Mark. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie caulfield Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.